Good morning, everyone. Good morning. God has a plan for me, a plan to prosper me and not to harm me, screamed Sarai. How dare you talk back to me? She reached for Abram's walking staff, gripping it in fury as she turned to see the prostrate servant girl in front of her. Not just a servant girl, her slave girl. The staff in her hand felt familiar and sturdy. Suddenly, this instrument of comfort and support on the journey became yet another tool of violence as she lashed it out and down towards the pregnant Egyptian slave. God has a plan for me, a plan to prosper me and not to harm me, sighed Abram, hearing the angry steps of his wife approaching. Another day, and judging by the sound of the thudding and the sobbing, it sounded like another beating for that slave girl. The slave girl that Sarai had pushed into his bed, trying to secure a baby that she could raise as her own. Now, granted, Abram hadn't resisted all that hard. Well, not at all, really. After all, that was the way that everyone dealt with infertility in those days. And the slave girl was so much younger than Sarai. Maybe this could actually be the way that God's promise was supposed to unfold. That wouldn't be so bad for Abram. But he would need Sarai to raise the boy, to be a mother to him. So Abram reached out, picked up a piece of fruit off of his table, took a bite, and turned to comfort his wife once more. The slave girl didn't say anything as she hurriedly pulled a small bag out from under her bedroll. She quietly pushed the tent flat back and began to run, unsteady, unevenly, legs sore from the beatings and the serving of her mistress, her body aching from nurturing a new life inside it. And yet she ran. She ran from the position that held her as less than human, ran from the mistress who had traded for her and then traded her to her husband and then had betrayed her by resenting her for doing the thing that Sarai had asked her to do in the first place. She ran from the new husband who still saw her only as a slave girl. And she ran towards the promise of the past, towards freedom, towards an exodus, an Egyptian escaping the oppression of the grandparents of the Israelites. And that's the middle of the story. The middle of the story can be a hard place to be often. It's often ambiguous, and sometimes you aren't sure how you got here, and you definitely don't know how the story is going to end yet. The reality is that for each one of us here today, students, faculty, myself, we're all living in the middle of our story. Each moment, right up until the end, which often comes unexpectedly, and there's not much we can do at that point, we are living somewhere in the middle. And the middle of the story can be a hard place to live. It's a bit like entering into a new semester. You might have plans and dreams and hopes for what will happen, the things you will learn and experience and the results you'll get at the end. But you also know that between there and now, there are going to be many days and nights, many twists and complications along the way. You'd rather maybe be out there doing ministry and interacting with people rather than interacting with irregular Greek verbs. <laughs> you might know how you got here and where you've come from, and you might have a hope for where you're going, but for right now, you're just here in the middle. It's a bit like entering into a new season of ministry. You might make plans, set goals, articulate visions, but along the way you know that there will be phone calls at 11 p.m. on a Friday night. You will know that there will be flooded baptismal tanks at some point. Church members who might drop off the radar without saying a word, and new surprises who will show up on a Sunday who you never expected to see again. 
You dream of a distant church somewhere in the future that is flourishing and that sets a tone for the community and the life around it. But for now, you're here in the middle. And it's a bit like the journey of faith. One where you might know the theology, you might know the stories, the traditions, the practices, some of the ancient languages, but day to day, you often feel kind of dry, thirsty, searching for a well. And you know that the promise is that there is a stream of living water that flows through the heavenly city that nourishes the tree of life, a tree ripe with fruit. But for now, today, you're here, somewhere in the middle. And when the middle of the story leaves us feeling dry or distant or defeated, we tend to do, well, interesting things. Sarai knew that God had a plan and a promise for her and Abram, that he had promised them a son and descendants that would outnumber the sand and the stars. But in the middle of the story, before that happens, she blames God. She names him not as the one who would provide her a child, but the one who is keeping her from bearing children. And so, Sarai takes matters into her own hands. She did what was socially acceptable, what was normal in that day and age, and found a woman who was made in the image of God, but who she could see only as a slave. And she named her as a slave and took her to her husband, so that her husband could take her to his bed, and so that together they could take a child from her. And when presented with this plan to take for themselves what the Lord had already promised to give to them, Abram listened to his wife. And it sounds very much in the way that Adam listened to his wife. And it looks very much in the way that we often listen to the voices speaking to us, encouraging us to, well, maybe you can do this on your own. Maybe you can make it on your own strength. Maybe God promised, but it's taking an awfully long time. Did he really say that? In the middle of the story, it's easy to forget the promises that have brought us here. It is easy to fall back onto our own understanding, and it is easy to second-guess God and the ways in which he has spoken in the past. And it can even become easy for us, whether we are fathers or mothers of the faith, or simply seminary students on a Wednesday afternoon, to see God as withholding, but to also see our destiny as somehow manifest if we could only reach out and seize it, if we only had the will and the power to go out and grab it. But it's also easy at times to become complacent and passive. We might know that the promise is true, that God has spoken, that his word is just and right, and so we trust it so completely, so confidently, that we start to let things slide along the way. God's going to look after me, we whisper. So I'll just close my eyes and trust his timing. I'll just focus on how I'm going to decorate my eternal mansion. In the meantime, the house around me here on earth starts to burn. Why should we get so worried or worked up about violence somewhere else around the world, we might ask? God's on our side. I know the plans he has for us to prosper us, not to harm us. And unfortunately, some people take this and say, well, if someone else is suffering or in trouble, they obviously deserve it. They've done something wrong. It's all God's will, and so we just do nothing, and we sit here and we focus on our own promises. And if someone gets caught in the crossfire, if someone suffers because we have sinned and focused on our own power and glory, then we just write it off as an accident. We blame it on bad luck. The middle of the story can be a very hard place to be sometimes. It can make us want to lash out. It can make us want to close our eyes and wait. And often it can make us want to run away. 
It can make us wonder why we ever came here, allowed ourselves to end up here in the first place, waiting for a promise that just never seems to arrive. And so maybe we do run. Maybe we grab what we can of our dreams. We run towards the last place, the last habit, the last drink or image or practice or embrace or story that made us feel safe. And we remember the way we think, but as we go, we find that maybe I'm not quite sure. And so eventually we stop moving. We fall somewhere in the wilderness between the middle of our story and the beginning by a spring of water somewhere before we make it all the way to shore. And right there, at that moment as we are forced to stop, is the reason I love this story. Because as this woman who has only ever been called a slave, as this woman who has only ever been treated like an object, rests in exhaustion by the spring in the wilderness on the way to shore, she doesn't rest alone. Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? A stranger meets her there at that spring. A stranger speaks her name aloud, Hagar, for the very first time in her story. A stranger asks her a question and listens to her voice for the first time in the story. A stranger who knows who she is, her name, her role, but who invites her to share her story with him. And Hagar is asked where she is coming from and where she is going, and we hear her response, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She answers the question about where she's coming from, but she has nothing to say about where she's going. There are times in our stories, in the middle of our stories, where the future is unclear. The earlier parts loom so large in our minds, they stand so firm in our focus that it is hard to even imagine what our future might look like, let alone articulate it to someone else. And so the stranger, in that awkward silence, steps in and provides an answer. Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her. Return to your... Can you think of a worse response than that for Hagar? She has been bought and sold traded, abused, beaten, cursed, is fleeing for her life and the life of her child, and she is told by this stranger in the wilderness to go back, to return and submit. What kind of slavery-supporting, uncaring, insensitive, harmful, and maybe even fatal instruction is this? But we're in the middle, and the stranger continues. I will so greatly multiply your offspring that no one will be able to count them. You will have a son and no one will ever be able to tell him what to do. He is going to run around as free as a wild ass. People are going to try to grab him, bridle him, tame him, break him, and no one will, and that will turn people against him, but he will remain free. And you will give him a name, Ishmael, which means... God hears, the stranger said, because I do. As is often the case when the Lord shows up, it takes Hagar until the end of the conversation to realize it. We often think, as the best and the brightest, that we are quick to recognize the things of God. But even we fall short often, and it takes us until somewhere in the middle, somewhere near to the end, to recognize the voice of God as he speaks. 
And you can talk to Glenn or Benjamin more about the Old Testament figure described as the angel of the Lord, and I'm sure that they would love to talk to you about that. But for our purposes this morning, in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord shows up, the Lord shows up, and he is present. And God meets Hagar at that well in the middle of her story and shows that he knows not just about her beginnings, not just about where she is currently, but also where she and her child will be in the future. And he shows that he is not waiting distantly at the finish line, arms crossed, impatient for her to get there, but he is listening and seeing and walking each step of the journey with her, this poor, almost nameless Egyptian slave girl in the wilderness. And so Hagar responds. She responds by naming the Lord El Roy, which means the God who sees. This name doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible for God. You can check it. I did. <laughs> like Hagar's name herself, it's a personal name. A name that comes from experience and a sense of personal connection and relationship. She has finally seen someone who also sees her. And she has seen the one who makes the promises that have driven not just the stories of Sarai and Abram, but now her herself. She has seen the one who is the source of those promises and the power to fulfill them. And she has seen the one who is the source of her story. And her story ends, as all of our stories do, at least for a little while. Hagar goes back to Abram and has a son. And Abram names the son, born by Hagar, Ishmael. And Abram is 86 when Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Two verses. Three mentions of Hagar's name. Three mentions of Abram's name. Two mentions of Ishmael's name. Sarah's name? Zero. And it appears, as we read this, that the author wants us to think that even though the story begins with Sarai and her attempts to grab God's timing into her own hands, it ends with God's act of grace for Hagar. The provision of a son, the provision of a place within the household, and a return to safety when she thought all of that was long behind her. And yet, although the author has a judgment about Sarai, this is not a story of judgment. God enters it not to condemn Sarai directly, not to waken Abram with an act of righteous fury or wrath. He'll keep his promises to them. Faithful even in their unfaithfulness, he will provide them a son of their own. But this story, this moment in the middle of the story of Genesis, starts with Sarai's efforts and ends with Hagar's experience of God's grace. The Lord makes himself known to the nameless runaway who's desperate for some sort of future for her child. He comes to the victim, the one who's been caught in the crossfire, the collateral victim of our efforts to force ourselves into the role of God. And the Lord in this story is with Hagar. The Lord in our story is also present. He is in the plane. He's in the homes that have been left empty by the people who were on the plane in Iran. He's in the middle of the fires in Australia and the devastation and the hurt there. He's here with us in the library. When our problems, even though they might seem small, might seem large to us, he's in the library when we feel like our call is more like a distant echo. When the length of the journey and the weight along the way almost seems too much and causes us to stumble. Our God is with us, and I'm wondering 
if you have had a chance to see him somewhere today. Our God is with us because he is Jesus of the manger, the infant baby reliant on others. He is Jesus of the wilderness with no place of his own to lay his head. He is the Jesus at the tables of the swindlers and the sex workers who the community had written off as hopeless. He's a Jesus in the synagogue, speaking to the wise and the learned. He's a Jesus in the temple, this home that had been built for him and did not recognize him for one second. He's the Jesus in the gutter, with people who were eyes so blind, they couldn't see anything except his divinity. He's a Jesus on the mountainside, teaching the crowds who had come to hear a word of hope and assurance in the middle of oppression. And he's the Jesus in the valleys of the waves, surrounding the boat telling his disciples, it's okay, I'm here. And he's the Jesus of the cross. And not just the cross, but the road to the cross. All those stopping points and middle points along the way, the whipping post, the spit-covered face, the mocking jeers, and the burden that is just too heavy to carry, that he drops it, and he has to have someone else help him. He is present in those moments. And after it all, Even in the middle of his story, he is Jesus of the empty tomb. The locked room that he walks into freely. The beach where he invites his friends to come and eat. And he is the Jesus of the skies as he rose to heaven. And he continues to be the God of every story. From Jerusalem, to Patmos, to Rome, to the bar down at the anvil off of Main Street. He's there. And wherever there is someone in need of a word of hope, a comforting presence in the middle of their story, God is there, even though we might not be. I'm wondering if you've stopped and had a chance to see him today. He's a Jesus who was here for me in that seat, Zach, last October. Sometimes it's not trouble that causes us to get stuck in the middle of our story. Sometimes it is success, and it is ease, and it is affirmation. And last semester, as I began to carry and allow my focus to be pulled away by things like scholarships and encouragement and affirmation into a sense of needing to work to maintain, needing to work to finish well, needing to work to be good enough, I found myself frozen. I couldn't start assignments because I was worried I wasn't going to do my best. I couldn't approach chapel freely because I was worried about all the things that I had let build up behind me that I needed to go do. It was affecting my life at home as I was stressed and irritable. It was affecting my ministry as that became another burden to carry. And as I sat back there in October and recognized that things were not right, God was there in the middle of that story. And he stopped, and he said, Andrew, child of God, where are you coming from, and where are you going? And I thought back to all the things that had brought me here, all of the things that had led me to this point, and I said, God, I'm trying to do my best to serve you, but there's so much in the way. And he said, Andrew, I folded up all of the cloths that had covered me in the tomb, I cleaned up my own mess. I can clean yours up too. 
And so sometimes it takes us a moment when we reach the end of our strength and we stumble long enough that we blink and we take our focus off of our own story and we see the God who meets us somewhere quiet and reminds us that God, the one true God, isn't stuck in the middle of our stories. He sticks there with us, but he isn't stuck there like us. When we arrive at a crossroads, Christ has already left the cross. When we topple and fall down, Christ has risen, toppling hell itself. And when we see only the things that we're running from, God sees only the things that will follow. Hagar says, I'm running from my mistress. And God says, you will have a son and he will be free. You can go back and live out of that promise. And there is rest for us when we stop and see the God who sees all of the rest. This is the middle of our story. And after this, we will sing and we will eat. And we will quickly return and submit to the demands of the day. And whatever it is that we have put on pause to come here to this moment. But before we do, let's avoid moving too quickly. Let's move slowly even. Maybe even stop. And let's remember that the God of Hagar reveals himself to us in the presence of Christ Jesus. When God makes himself known in the middle of Hagar's story, she hears her identity spoken aloud for the very first time. She's reminded of a future that is sure, even if the present is incredibly difficult. She gains a new and more intimate relationship with that God, not just the God of Abram and Isaac and Jacob and all the rest, but the God who sees her, Hagar, the Egyptian slave. And in doing so, she leaves a legacy that is centered on the person whom she encounters at that well. Bir Laharoi, the well of the living one who sees me. Ishmael, God hears. Her story continues. Today, when we are like Sarai, trying to seize God's power for ourselves, let's stop and remind ourselves to trust in God's sovereign timing. When we are like Abram, let us open our eyes to the needs and the pain around us in this world that is created and loved so deeply by God. And when we walk in the path that was laid down by Hagar, let us seek the God who speaks our name, who holds our future in his hands, and who dwells here with us in this moment and in all moments. And let us share the middle of our stories with others so that as we go, others may be reminded that in Jesus Christ, our middle is never the end. Mm -hmm.